welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the many reasons why we are experiencing a housing crisis in the U.S. and beyond. But it's mostly down to treating housing as a commodity to be profited from, rather than a basic human need, or, if you're feeling radical, a basic human right. Clips today are from The Daily Show, The Tom Hartman Program, The Damage Report, The Gravel Institute, The Takeaway, and The Majority Report, with additional members-only clips from Rocky Mountain PBS and Channel 4 Documentaries. For decades, owning a home has been one of the core parts of the American dream, just below dating Pete Davidson. But right now, actually buying a home is harder than Matt Gates watching the new Saved by the Bell. With the housing market red hot, prospective buyers are trying not to get burned as demand soars, but supply is limited. Home prices rising at their highest rate in 15 years and demand so intense that Redfin reports nearly half of homes are selling within a week of hitting the market. Prospective home buyers in astronomical bidding wars, homes vanishing from listings hours after being posted. You go to an open house, there could be 50 cars in a line outside waiting to see that property. People are are so desperate that they'll court favors, uh, get, uh, you know, potential sellers, uh, tickets to rare events. Even houses with notorious histories are selling. This is the 100-year-old Mediterranean-style home in L.A. where the Charles Manson family murdered Leno and Rosemary LaBianca in 1969, but in today's market, it was snapped up for $1.8 million. Okay, 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 I know what you're thinking right now. Why on earth would you buy that house? Someone was murdered there. Yeah, exactly. Someone has already been murdered there. What are the odds it'll happen again? I mean, I'd sleep like a baby in that place. But seriously, people, the housing market has gotten crazy in America. I mean, some people are buying a house just hours after it's posted online. A house. Hours. Meanwhile, I read reviews for six months before I finally decide which water bottle to buy. Now that I think about it, I should have gotten the blue one. But the question is, why has it become so hard to buy a home in America? When it comes to why the housing market has gotten so insane lately, it's kind of a perfect storm of many different factors, right? You've got not enough homes being built to keep up with the population growth. You've got historically low mortgage rates, so more people can buy houses. And then on top of that, more people are able to work from home. So they're leaving the city for the suburbs, where maybe, yes, there's not as much excitement but you and your spouse have way more space to murder your neighbors. But it turns out there's something else driving up demand for homes, and that's who is competing for them more than ever before, starting with the guys who tend to ruin everything, Wall Street. With home prices soaring to record highs, there are mounting questions about the billions of dollars big financial firms are pouring into the market and pricing out some would-be buyers. Blackstone has been on the single-family home buying rampage. It began late last year going head-to-head with other major Wall Street players. Large financial firms, often backed by private equity, buy up and rent out single-family homes. The companies typically use computer algorithms to identify desirable properties so they can bid quickly They're very aggressive. Their offers come in all cash. They come in sight unseen. So as soon as the house hits the market, you got an offer from them. 
Okay, um, and they're ready to close within a few days. So there's about 25 to 35 percent of the houses in this neighborhood are owned by Wall Street landlords. One of them is Invitation Homes, which owns more than 12,000 single-family houses in the Atlanta area and nationwide more than 81,000. Three other large firms own more than 100,000 homes combined. One of them just announced a five billion dollar fund to buy more. Okay, okay, I know what you're thinking right now. Why on earth would we allow Wall Street to mess with the housing market? They caused the housing crisis. Yeah, exactly. They already caused a housing crisis. What are the odds it happens again? Not sleep like a baby in that place. But yes, Wall Street is now buying up tons of homes all across America. Because what better way to fix your image problem than to become the nation's biggest landlord, I guess. And regular people, regular people trying to buy homes, well, they don't have much of a chance going up against Wall Street. I mean, Wall Street usually has more money. That's kind of their whole thing. Your only hope is to like try and distract them by asking how their crypto is doing. Yeah, and then by the time they're done answering, you'll be in escrow. But it turns out there's another group. There's another group that's driving up prices and they're not bankers. Yeah, it's not evil, greedy bankers. In fact, it's your mom. There is a generational fight that's playing out and partially to blame for more expensive home prices. You've got 90 million millennials, largest generation in U.S. history, storming the marketplace and really looking for that you know, dream of home ownership to start building wealth through owning their own property. So we have millennials aging into their home buying years. Baby boomers, meanwhile, are healthier, they're living longer, and they want to age in place. They're all competing for the same smaller houses. Baby boomers are looking to downsize while millennials and Gen Xers are looking to buy smaller, entry-level homes. So many baby boomers are active in the housing market that it's become much more difficult for millennials to buy a house. In general, boomers have a lot more money to outbid them. That's right. Boomers are dominating the housing market and there's an eight-hour Beatles movie on TV. They're living their best lives. What's left of them? Because, you know, this sucks for us millennials. This wasn't the plan, okay? You boomers were supposed to get old, then we would sell all your shit and move you into a nursing home where you get all the jello and geriatric hand jobs that you want, and then we take your house. That was the deal. You guys get to destroy the planet, we get the rec rooms, damn it. So with private equity squeezing them on the one side and their parents on the other, young people in particular are in a difficult spot when it comes to buying a home. And they really only have two choices. Go live in the woods, you know, make a home out of sticks and mud and join book clubs with squirrels or get really creative. A new trend hitting the housing market. Millennials are teaming up with their friends to buy their dream home together. For a lot of these new homeowners, doing this is the only way they're able to afford a home. A growing number of young Americans are abandoning cities and flocking to the suburbs, finding their cheap dream homes in far-flung places. More millennials are buying fixer-uppers, a big draw for young buyers. Fixer-uppers are often cheaper. Sometimes they go for as little as $20,000. Where are they finding these gyms? Well, leave it to millennials to do their house shopping on Instagram on a page called Cheap Old Houses. Why do you think millennials are so attracted to cheap old houses? It's cheap and it's old. <laughs> you know, sometimes reporters ask the dumbest questions. Why do millennials love crappy old houses that nobody else wants? Because it's their only option. It's like asking me in grade school, Trevor, why do you love sitting by yourself at lunchtime? What draws you to a life of spending recess with your imaginary friends? I mean, do you know how hard it is to buy houses off Instagram? 
You gotta slip into the house's DMs. Yo, does the carpet match the drapes? <laughs> no, for real, I need to know if the carpet matches the drapes. I can't afford to buy new drapes, so I just need to know, man. I got a budget. So that's where we are right now. Thanks to boomers and Wall Street, owning a home may soon no longer be the American dream. Some countries like Malaysia have made it illegal for foreign buyers to own property in their countries. That deals with the foreign buyer problem, which was a, a large part of the increase in home prices over the last 20 years. But uh, in the last 10 or 11 years have seen this explosion in these giant Wall Street firms coming in and buying up houses. They gain this massive economy of scale. You know, if they own, like in, in the Spring Hill neighborhood in, uh, in Nashville, um, these companies own 5% of all the houses. When they buy them, they go in and they, they put in their own appliances and their own, you know, refrigerators and washers. And, I mean, they, they're spending an average of $25,000 a house when they buy these houses. And that way they have their own repair service and it's the same parts for the same stuff for every house. They have their own local rental management company so that they've got, you know, a law firm and, and everything to, to evict people and, you know, deal with renters and problems like that. They've got economies of scale that no individual homeowner can compete with, that Airbnb can't compete with. So do we ban, uh, you know, corporations from owning houses? or owning more than a certain number of houses, or owning more than a certain percentage of houses in any given city? Is that, I mean, you can do that with zoning. Is that the first step? Or on the other hand, do we flip it around and do like, you know, what happened in the 1950s when my dad bought his one and only house. He, he bought it in 1957 and literally died in it. He died in the living room of it. I, I, was sitting next to him, you know, in his living room as he died and in that house. And, uh, you know, which was 2006, I mean, years later, right? He bought that house with a VA loan. He had been, you know, he volunteered for the draft during World War II and, you know, went off to Japan. And so he qualified for a Veterans Administration loan. We were subsidizing middle-income, middle-class people to buy houses. Do we go back to doing that? Do we start offering incentives to people uh, to, to buy housing? I think, frankly, regulating the market is a stronger way to do it right now. Because, I mean, you know, by the point my dad made, I remember the 1980s when, uh, during the Reagan administration, when, when mortgage, Louise and I bought a house in Atlanta during that time in, in uh, 81 or maybe 82. And um, we were paying 13%. That was the, that was the mortgage rate. And uh, my dad was telling me how the banks were calling him up and saying, hey, wouldn't you love to roll your loan over? Because he was paying 1.5% or something like that with this VA loan. And his house was almost completely paid off. And they wanted to get him into one of these 18 or 13% you know, mortgages. But right now, home mortgages are, you know, running 2 to 3%. So I doubt that we could do much to help middle-class people buy homes. What we need to do is deal with the affordability of them, which will cause, you know, if, if we were to say, okay, corporate, you know, giant corporations can't buy housing any longer in the United States, or there's a limit on how much they can buy, 
or if city after city starts adopting this, you know, there there is no progressive equivalent of ALEC, you know, that produces standardized legislation that everybody across the country can, you know, that every state can use. But if there were, that somebody, or if one city just does it, you know, Seattle or Portland or San Francisco or something, just says, you know, we're going to cap how many, how many single res, single, you know, single resident homes owned by other than human beings. We're going to cap that. If a city were to do that, it would level off housing prices for a while. It would stop the explosion of housing prices. It might even cause a slight sag in the housing market for a short time. The housing market will recover as wages go up. But that would be a good thing, I would think, because it would mean that housing would start becoming affordable again. As soon as we saw this story, we knew that we had to talk about it and we had to get Anna Kasparian's reaction because we know that housing is out of control. The price has been going up nationwide. We're in a crisis. We talk about this regularly. How bad is it getting though? It's getting so bad that people are fleeing the country. Year over year home prices in the LA metro area went up 15.2% in 2021. Overall in Southern California, 15.4%. Almost half of America's million dollar cities where the average price of a home is at least $1 million are in California. So it's bad everywhere, but it's particularly bad here. The LA metro area has $57 million cities, which is insane. If you like, if you don't wanna buy, if you just wanna rent, say in San Diego, a two bedroom, two bathroom rental goes for about $2,400 a month. A house there is like 770,000 in general. So what has that led to? Well. According to the president of the Real Estate Association of Tijuana, the shortage of housing in California is creating a price surge in Tijuana's housing and apartment market, with rents now ranging from $400 to $2,500 a month there too. He said, unfortunately, everything is based on supply and demand. We are seeing that rent prices have gone up by 30% as low and mid-range housing is now in high demand by Americans coming here. So like it, they, they say that you know people are leaving the big cities or maybe California is too expensive, they're leaving there. No, they're supposedly leaving America, Anna, what do you think? I, I feel awful for everyone in this story with one exception and that's the primary cause of the housing crisis, which we'll get to in a second. But look, I, I understand why Californians would move out of California and look for cheaper housing. Going to Mexico and inflating the prices for the local community there is not good. I'm not happy about that development. That means that the same issues that we're having within our borders are now spilling over outside of our borders. And so now it's becoming more of an international problem and I hate that. Look, there are there are solutions to what we're seeing with the housing crisis as we speak, right? So there is a shortage of housing. There could be more inventory. Yes, I agree with those who think we should maybe rethink some of our zoning laws and allow for the construction of additional housing units. But that's just one part of the solution here. The other solution is, Foreigners should not be allowed to buy investment property in the United States. So this affects 
major cities across the country, not just Los Angeles. Um, I'm tired of hearing about uh, various oligarchs or various business interests in places like China parking their money in US real estate, things like commercial real estate, yes, but also in single family homes. We should also ban private equity firms from what they've been doing, certainly during the pandemic, where they're taking cheap money from the Federal Reserve and investing it into entire neighborhoods, buying up entire neighborhoods of single family homes so they can then turn around and corner the market in being the number one slumlords in this country. That kind of stuff needs to be addressed now immediately. And I have not seen any action by the Democratic Party on this. I haven't even seen any attention paid to this issue by the Democratic Party. All they seem to focus on is we just need to build more housing. No, if we don't have certain policies in place to prevent private equity firms from doing what they've been doing, then we're gonna keep building housing that will get snatched up by the very corporate interests that have contributed significantly to this problem. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. It might help a little bit in driving down the price, but it isn't the, it's not addressing the root cause of the problem. And why would it? Like the people who are doing the buying up, as you say, cornering the market, like literally buying dozens and dozens and dozens of homes in an area so they can set the price to whatever they want, they donate to politicians. And so, like, if you were to ban people living outside of the US from speculating on housing here, that would be beneficial for people who are trying to rent and trying to buy homes, but it would be bad for the real estate companies that are trying to get the most money possible. Which one do we think the state legislators are going to listen to? Like in in you know Sacramento, like so that is why we need to put pressure on them. And again, it goes back to money and politics. If they have tons of money to buy out politicians and get them to 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 put forward legislation regulations that is super friendly to the real estate industry then that's what we're gonna get. And we're gonna keep getting screwed over when it comes to renting and buying homes. And understand it's 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 super friendly policy, not just for the real estate industry, not just for the private equity firms. It's also excellent policy for real estate developers who yeah. want government contracts to build the what they refer to as affordable housing. Oftentimes it's like mixed use buildings that have like 5% affordable housing included. But they get these government contracts, they get to inflate construction prices or construction costs to pad their pockets. It's a completely corrupt and disgusting system that we have in place that for good reason has actually done very little to nothing in responding to the affordable housing crisis that we're dealing with. Yeah, and to close, I just want to say because we continually try to get people to broaden the the borders of their compassion as much as possible. This is also screwing over people in Tijuana and other places where people are moving to. They say that those moving down to Tijuana have almost 30% more to spend on a home than the average budget for locals. So then how does that play out for the locals? The price yep. of rent is going to go up. Housing is going to become impossible to actually purchase. Like that's terrible for them too. And I understand it might be a little bit more more difficult for people to really like center that concern when it is so difficult to pay their own rent, let alone to imagine someday buying a home. But it's just a reminder that there are huge ripple effects from this. We need to do something about it. And honestly, it's no coincidence that Fox News will talk about something like like inflation in general. Or gas prices. Why are they talking about the cost of housing? 
because then they would have to advocate for doing something. And you can't just drill more houses, I guess. You can build more houses, but they know that people aren't gonna buy that as an actual solution. So these are these are very significant economic issues and we, we need to make sure that we don't lose sight of them, even though basically no politicians are talking about this. Today's episode is sponsored by Bombas, and their mission is simple, to make the most comfortable clothes ever and match every item sold with an equal item donated. So when you buy Bombas, you're also giving to someone in need. And Bombas has designed their socks, shirts, and underwear to be the clothes that you can't wait to put on, because everything they make is soft, seamless, tagless, and has a cozy feel. Plus, they've made high-tech innovations that let them craft a pair of Bombas socks for basically everything you do. They come in tons of options. For instance, comfy performance styles made with sweat wicking yarns, which means your feet stay cool while the rest of you works up a sweat. And I've been wearing them for years, enjoying them on a daily basis. But the main reason I like to promote them is that from the very beginning, they've been focused on building a business that does good. They started selling socks with the buy one, donate one model specifically because socks were the most requested item at homeless shelters. T-shirts and underwear are numbers two and three on that list, and so now, of course, they've expanded accordingly. So far, Bomba's customers like you have helped donate over 50 million items of essential clothing. So go to bombas.com slash best and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash best for 20% off. Bombas.com slash best. American housing is in crisis. Right now, up to 12 million Americans are behind an average of $5,800 on rent and risk eviction. With eviction moratoriums soon to expire, we're facing an unprecedented wave of evictions and foreclosures that will crash straight into millions of struggling families across the country. But the truth is, this crisis didn't begin with the pandemic. In fact, housing has been in crisis for a very long time. Even before the pandemic, in places like New York or Los Angeles or San Francisco, median rents for even one-bedroom apartments could approach $2,500 a month or more. About a third of people in Los Angeles spend a majority of their income on housing. In New York City, about 20% of all renters pay most of their income to their landlord. And in my district, Astoria, about a quarter of residents have to spend most of their paycheck on rent. And the crisis isn't just in big cities. In 95% of all U.S. counties, workers making the minimum don't make enough to afford a one-bedroom rental on their own. The Harvard Center for Housing Studies warns of a new normal for housing in the United States, in which nearly half of all renter households spend almost a third of their income on rent. That's why even before the fallout from the coronavirus started to hit, more than half a million Americans nationwide were already homeless, millions more on the brink of losing their housing, and countless families struggling every month to make ends meet. At the root of all of this suffering is the fact that in this country, housing is treated as a commodity, not a right. It's a consumer product, just like clothes or cars, that private businesses can sell on the market to make a profit. And if someone isn't able to pay, either because their landlord raised their rent or because they can't work for one reason or another, they're not able to stay in their homes. If they're lucky, they can live with friends or family or maybe in transitional housing for a bit. But for a lot of people, they have nowhere else to go and they end up sleeping on the streets. In December 2019, the number of people sleeping in homeless shelters in New York reached 19,000 people, an all-time high. 
100,000 New York City students are homeless. That's more than 10% of the entire student population. Why do so many people end up homeless? It's not because there aren't enough homes to go around. There are plenty of empty homes. No, it's because housing people is not the primary goal of developers or landlords. Their goal, simply put, is to make a profit. And it's much more profitable to build luxury apartments for the rich than decent homes for the poor. This gives us a big shortage of homes for ordinary working people. For every 100 households that are extremely low income, there are only 36 affordable and available homes. As a result, we have plenty of housing for the rich, but poor and working class people don't have nearly enough on the market. So we have people scrounging to make ends meet or sleeping on the streets right below luxury condos and uninhabited apartments. This is a terrible way to organize a housing market. It might be profitable for landlords and developers, but it's not efficient or beneficial for the rest of society. In fact, housing doesn't have to be seen as a market at all. In other countries, housing is considered a fundamental right, like education or healthcare. That means the government goes to significant lengths to guarantee everyone has a home, and the market plays a much smaller role in the construction and distribution of housing. So let's hop across the pond and about 100 years back in time to take a look at just one example of how an alternative housing model got started in beautiful red Vienna. At the end of the First World War, the Austro-Hungarian Empire collapsed, leaving behind a number of successor states, including modern-day Austria, home to the former imperial capital of Vienna, the fifth largest city in the world. Despite being the seat of an empire, the chaos of the war and decades of neglect had left the working class of Vienna in desperate circumstances. Inflation was rampant, jobs were scarce, social services were non-existent, and hundreds of thousands of people were crammed into decaying tenements where overcrowding, disease, and violence were rampant. So it's no surprise that in 1919, at the first elections ever held in Austria where all adult citizens could vote, the Social Democratic Party swept into power at the municipal level on the promise of dramatic social and economic reform. And they delivered. The new government of Vienna implemented a huge range of services, including public health care and public child care. They built high-quality hospitals, schools, and recreational facilities. But their crowning achievement was an ambitious program of social housing, what Americans call public housing, that began in 1923 and saw 60,000 new apartments constructed in the first year of its existence, built by the government and financed by taxes on the rich. But these weren't the kinds of apartments you might picture when you think of public housing in the United States. Drab, high-rises, plagued by chronic neglect and underinvestment. Residents could enjoy leafy courtyards, wide-open spaces, and plenty of natural light. They had shared laundries, state-of-the-art kitchens, food co-ops, bathhouses, pharmacies, lecture halls, schools, and swimming pools. These apartments were designed to be both beautiful to look at and beautiful to live in, fostering a sense of shared community among the people who lived there. And the best part was that because the city didn't have to worry about making a profit, just about paying off their maintenance costs, these homes were both much nicer and much cheaper than what workers had previously known. In 1926, the average rent in Viennese social housing was about just 4% of a monthly wage. The first 15 years after Austrian independence saw its capital transform from a symbol of urban blight into a beacon of socialist governance. It became known as Red Vienna, after the official color of the socialists who had pioneered these changes. And even though Red Vienna fell in 1934 when the country was seized by fascists, who did what they could to roll back social housing, that commitment to good, cheap housing remained after the Second World War. 
Today, an astonishing 62% of all city residents live in social housing, with the average monthly rent falling somewhere between $400 and $600 a month, with subsidies for lower-income tenants. That is a fraction of what people in America pay. Unlike in the United States, where public housing is treated as a worst-case way to house the very poor, Vienna's social housing residents are extremely diverse. Everyone except the top fifth of the population is eligible to live in social housing. This means there's broad appeal across many segments of society, which creates the foundation for its political popularity. That is how the majority of people in Vienna enjoy something that's considered almost utopian here in New York. Affordable housing that isn't just cheap, but desirable. Housing that isn't just four walls and a roof, but a real home with a sense of stability, safety, and community built in. Now, of course, this is only one example of an alternative framework for housing. And Vienna has not fully removed housing from the domain of the market. Residents still pay part of their earnings and rent to cover operational costs, and a sizable chunk of the population lives in private housing. But it's an actually existing alternative that shows us what a step toward a better world could look like. If we want to end the housing crisis, the solution has to be moving toward the full decommodification of housing. In other words, moving away from the status quo in which most people access housing by purchasing it on the market and toward a future where we guarantee high-quality housing to all as a human right. So how can we do it? We can start by making sure people who access housing on the private market have ironclad protections against abuse and exploitation. But to go further, toward the Vienna model, we'll have to go beyond the market. We can establish community land trusts to gradually buy up housing on the private market and convert it to community ownership. We can give tenants a right of first refusal to buy out their landlords when buildings go up for sale. And we can fully commit to a new era of social housing, ending subsidies for luxury housing development and using our wealth to build beautiful, high-quality social housing projects that offer good homes and strong communities to everyone. We won't decommodify housing overnight, but we know what we have to do, and we have history to guide us. And we know how we'll get there, through a movement of the multiracial working class organizing for the better world we know is possible. And we've already begun. Professor, welcome back to the program. I, we're, we're seeing a lot of uh, stories about housing bubbles and um, concern that a recession is coming and that it might burst a housing bubble. I remember back in the day, Will Rogers uh, famously said, my daddy told me, buy land. They ain't making it no more. And, uh, you know, land has and, and housing has been a fairly reliable investment, a major vehicle for the wealth of the middle class, uh, certainly throughout my lifetime. I'm wondering what causes housing bubbles? Are we in a housing bubble? What happens when they burst you know, where are we at with regard to all that? I mean, you know, obviously, we saw this disaster in 2008 around housing. Where do you think we're at now? Well, I'm afraid it looks rather similar. As many people have noted, that's not unique to me, not by a long shot. Uh, bubble is usually something one is very clearly seeing after it's over. In other words, it is a 2020 hindsight kind of thing. You notice that prices went up a long time very far in a short period of time, and then they collapse. And you look back on it and you say, oh, there was a bubble and oh, it burst. This has happened repeatedly, both on a national level and in regions. The most famous part of the United States 
for having housing bubbles has been Florida, at least for the last century, for all kinds of special reasons. Uh, the prices have gone crazy over the last two or three months. Uh, that's very clear. Uh, the major reason for that is not uh, the pandemic and it's not uh, the Ukraine war. It's the fact that for 20 years now, 20 years, the threat of a collapse of our economy, of a real depression, has been so severe that the Federal Reserve, uh, governed whether by a Democrat or a Republican, didn't really matter, was terrified to do anything other than bring interest rates down to or even below zero, and that made money cheap, and that let the borrowers get going to buy the house and the borrowers to get going to uh, make the house if you're a builder. The end result was a boom. And now the question is, with the inflation everywhere, in the housing industry even more, are we going to rein that back in? The Federal Reserve says yes. And then the question immediately comes, oh, my goodness, will all the people who have borrowed money to buy a home be unable to make the payments? And then we're exactly where we were in 2007 and eight all over again. Yeah. Now, in 2007, 2008, there were liar loans that were legal. And, uh, you know, and, and you had this whole slicing and dicing into um, uh, collateralized debt obligations and everything else. Uh, I thought a lot of that had been taken care of. Are, are, are you concerned about those things? Or is this more just that if there's a general downturn, a lot of people are going to lose their jobs. And when they lose their jobs, they won't be able to make their mortgage payments. Yeah, because, you know, on the one hand, there are some restrictions that people point to who want to comfort themselves. But offsetting that are a whole set of new uh, developments that have to be taken into account. During the pandemic, people, because they had to adjust their lives, borrowed using the equity in their homes to borrow and jack up their indebtedness in order to improve their home, add a room, make accommodations for working at home, and all of that. Those people have raised their level of debt and didn't have to be governed by some of those adjustments that were made after 2007 and eight. And number two, perhaps more important, is that we have eroded the mass of purchasing power and incomes of our people. Let's remember the mass of Americans just went through the pandemic, which cost them all kinds of expenses, then an economic crash about the same time, now a devastating inflation that is literally making it impossible for them to continue the scale of uh, level of standard of living they had. When you put all that together, you are suggesting the possibility of one of those so-called perfect storms where too many variables come together and make it impossible for the high level of prices. And remember, we have one more thing to keep in mind. The failure of many people along the way to maintain their homes over the last four years has meant that we've had a very significant shift in the way we own houses in the United States. Many fewer homes are owned by the people who live in them. Many, many more, we're talking millions now, of homes are owned by investment companies. They look at this the way they look at any other investment. If things go south, if the number of people who can buy in 
by renting, they're going to dump those houses. And when they do, you're going to see a, a new kind of depression of the housing bubble that we didn't even see before because we hadn't gotten to the point where houses become an investment game for the super rich rather than, as you put it, a way for the middle class to accumulate at least a little wealth. Yeah, I, I, I wrote an op-ed about this about a year ago, and, and I was shocked doing the research into it, how, uh, how extraordinary, I mean, you know, in some communities you find, you know, as many as half of all the homes that were available were being bought by, you know, these giant hedge funds and, you know, organizations like BlackRock and whatnot, uh, as I recall. Um, and, um, and, and it's, you know, and then they're jacking up rents on top of that and making housing even more unaffordable. Um, how much of a factor in the current price of housing do you think is this, I don't, I don't know if you'd call it market manipulation or just the predictable outcome of, you know, big investors getting into housing for the first time, I, I think, in American history, uh, at least the way they're doing it now. In Chattanooga, for example, they were talking about some mind-boggling percentage of houses owned by a big, you know, hedge fund. Uh, how is that affecting things? I think it's affecting it very significantly. Even if the number was still small, let's say 10%, 8%, 12%, something around there, you might think of that as small. But remember, a crash has to only start with a few people bailing. Once you start doing that and the prices start going down, it builds on itself. It means everybody else who was on the edge about selling their home is now prompted to sell it quickly because the prices are coming down. You want to sell before the price of what you're selling. And that becomes the very uh, cataclysm that we then look back on and say that the bubble burst. I would like to underscore that the same BlackRock and other investment operations buying up housing in the United States are also doing it elsewhere. I did research recently to discover that one of the major owners of homes in Berlin, Germany, is the same company that owns homes in Chattanooga, New York, California, and all the rest, which means these companies are not just comparing housing in the United States with other housing in the United States. They're global. This is a globalization. If they can't make the kind of money they want in this country, they can do it somewhere else and they will. They're not going to be bound by some rules of commitment to one society or another. Their business is growing globally and we're now becoming just another place and we better show up with the right money, the right profit or else they're going to leave and the cataclysm that may come from that of the declining prices leading your regular homeowner to get out of it quickly too, that they're not responsible for that. They don't have to pay for that. They don't calculate that. They will make their decisions and we all in this country will be left to live with the consequences. I, I know in the developed world, uh, at least the part of the developed world that uh, vigorously embraced neoliberalism back in the 1980s, most of these laws have been done away with. Um, but it, they're so common around the world where countries uh, say uh, housing is something that we, uh, you know, is, it's so essential to the general welfare of our people that we're going to heavily regulate it. And foreign 
investors may not own housing unless they actually live in it and they have the equivalent of a green card, whatever that may be in that country. And corporations may not own housing um, except within very, very limited constraints, you know, apartment buildings and things like that. As an economist, is that the sort of thing that you think that would would be a good idea here in the United States to limit, you know, housing to, to, to families? Or is that the sort of thing that, you know, I can just hear Stephen Moore's voice in my head going, you know, you're, that's government interference in the free market. Oh, my God. Yes. I, uh, let me make it real clear. I believe in government interference in the free market whenever a rational assessment of the situation indicates that the society as a whole benefits more and that those are the issues for me. I compare the private profitability of the individual corporation with the social conditions. The, the, the craziness of the economics profession, of which I'm a part, to have taught all these years that what is privately profitable by some magic is supposed to automatically be what's best for society. I mean, I understand why they want to sell us that craziness, but we don't have to believe it. No, I agree that things like housing, food, and medical care are things that are fundamental to a decent life and should not be held hostage by people who tell us themselves that profit is their bottom line. If you haven't yet heard of Libro, get ready to be excited. Libro is the audiobook company that lets you buy audiobooks online, listen to them on iOS and Android apps, and support your local brick-and-mortar bookstore at the same time. This In contrast to, for instance, the online bookseller notorious for having nearly driven local bookstores out of business. Many of you may even already be members of an audiobook club where you pay a monthly fee and return for one audiobook credit each month, plus a discount on other individual purchases. Sound familiar? Well, now you can get the same great books and the same great deal, but from a company that doesn't make their warehouse employees pass out from the heat or office employees cry at their desks and support your local bookshop instead of trying to drive it out of business. So it's probably time to make the switch, I'm just saying. That said, if memberships aren't your thing, you absolutely don't need one to shop Libro. Don't sweat it and get only what you need when you need it. You can get all the details at bestofleft.com slash Libro. That also lets them know that I sent you bestofleft.com slash L-I-B-R-O. And meanwhile, if books made of trees are really more your thing, you can get the same warm and fuzzy feeling and still support your local bookstores by going to bestofleft.com slash bookshop. In March of 2020, Congress passed the CARES Act, including a federal eviction moratorium. The goal was, of course, to ward off potential evictions as tens of millions of Americans lost their jobs in the midst of a deadly, contagious virus. The federal moratorium lapsed just a few months later in July of 2020, but the CDC and Congress then issued a series of extensions. They were policies that were effectively an eviction moratorium, and they helped to protect tenants. But then, in August of 2021, the Supreme Court struck those measures down. Undoubtedly, those policies truly helped. But even with those protections in place, according to the National Equity Atlas, 17% of U.S. renters were behind on rent by the time federal protections ended. 
Now, individual states and cities also issued eviction protections of their own, many of which extended into this year. New York's, for example, ended in mid-January. And in California, some eligible tenants are still protected from eviction through June. But with eviction moratoriums ending and protections for vulnerable tenants withering away, legal advocates and tenant organizers are seeing housing courts filling up again. There is a tsunami of evictions post-moratorium. Carolyn Hedlum is an organizer with the Ithaca Tenants Union in upstate New York. 15 new cases last week. There are also 15 new cases next week, which is pretty wild for Ithaca. In the past, we've, you know, maybe had 100 eviction cases a year and things have ramped up. Things have ramped up considerably. Now, landlord organizations have disputed claims of a tsunami, but according to data from the eviction lab at Princeton University, which tracks evictions in six states and 31 cities, eviction rates had returned to almost pre-pandemic levels by March. In New York City, there are stronger protections for tenants facing evictions than in the rest of New York State, but eviction filings have been rising steadily since January. When the eviction moratoriums were put into place, I mean, in response to COVID, um, there was a sense of safety. Lauren Springer is a tenants' rights advocate in New York City with Catholic Migration Services and a member of the steering committee of the Right to Counsel New York City Coalition. There was a sense of um, people being able to stay in their homes. What's happened since that's lifted is now you have a flood of eviction filings being submitted in court. Now, in New York City, tenants who are facing eviction have what is called a right to counsel. Thanks to legislation that was passed by the city council back in 2017, it guarantees those facing eviction the right to legal representation in housing court. And city data show that the program is effective. 84% of tenants represented by right to counsel lawyers were able to stay in their homes. Eviction is a, is a um, traumatic experience that basically upends everything in a person's life. Springer says the law protects particularly vulnerable communities. I mean, their security, their safety, all of that. Unfortunately, I mean, prior to, to our um, getting this law passed, and one of the reasons why we wanted it passed was because we see evictions, the coalition, um, as, a, as, a, as a very violent process. It was a process that basically impacted communities of color more, especially, you know, um, women and you know, women of color and everything else like that. Springer also says that since eviction moratoriums have been lifted, tenants are not always receiving their right to counsel due to the sheer volume of cases and not enough right to counsel attorneys to go around. The caseloads or the court caseloads are actually a function of the fact that they had so many cases, like 200,000 cases backlogged from the last two or three years with COVID and the eviction moratorium. And then now about 7,000 cases per month are being filed in court. So it's a the backlog cases plus new case filings that are being moved forward without people having legal representation. And what the courts really need to do is, is slow down the cases and, and basically not prioritizing clearing court dockets over effectuating a tenant's right to counsel. Meanwhile, right to counsel does not exist at all in most places. According to the National Coalition for a Civil Right to Counsel, just 3% of tenants facing eviction have legal representation, compared to 81% of landlords. 
Carolyn Headlam, the organizer with the Ithaca Tenants Union in upstate New York, is pushing for legislation which would guarantee the right to counsel statewide. Well, this is really important legislation. First and foremost, it affirms that there is a fundamental human right to adequate housing, or in other words, every human being deserves a home. And part of defending that right is having adequate representation in any proceeding um, that could result in a tenant losing their home, right? Every tenant is a human being. Every human being deserves a home. Marika, let me play the other side of this for a moment. Let's say there's a landlord who says, look, it's been more than two years. I haven't received enough income from this tenant in that time. So if they don't go, then this is putting a real burden on my well-being. How do you respond to a landlord who has that kind of concern? Well, firstly, the landlord lobby themselves recently admitted that landlords in New York City are warehousing 20,000 apartments for which they are not receiving any rental income because they hope to receive greater return on their investments by renting out those apartments later on when they hope to change the laws so that they can attract higher rents. So I think it is misleading when the big corporate landlords use very small landlords as cover to claim that they are in some sort of situation of hardship. And in addition to that, there has also been mortgage relief and protections available. And, you know, I think the final point I would make is that when a tenant is facing eviction, the consequences that they are facing are the loss of the roof over their head. They're facing the possibility of homelessness um, and everything that that entails, whether that's impacts on health, education, community and family ties, the ability to keep a job, all of those things. And so the stakes are very, very high. And I do not think that it would make sense to be forcing cases uh, very quickly through the court system, as we see happening now, with tenants not having the right to counsel, and that leading to the consequence of many, many more people becoming homeless, just to satisfy landlords' needs to continually make profits on their investments. And so, you know, really that, I think, is the response that that needs to be maintained both by, you know, tenants and us as their advocates, but also by elected officials who are in the roles they're in to ensure the greater well-being of our society, which, you know, a mass eviction crisis is not going to achieve. Aura, help me to understand, if someone was evicted and did not have counsel, do they have the ability to revisit that eviction and, and get some level of, uh, of recompense or, or compensation? Unfortunately, once an eviction case moves all the way to judgment, it's, I won't say impossible, but extremely difficult and unlikely to unravel that at that point, which is why it is so crucial to commence the right to counsel at the earliest opportunity. Uh, We have found that the earlier on in the case that the attorney can be involved, the more likely there'll be a success from all perspectives. I mean, the fact is is that our right to counsel officially kicks in at the notice stage, which is prior to the actual court litigation. And if the parties could resolve the problem and save the time and expense and severe stress of a court eviction process, that's in everybody's interest to do. 
But in the absence of that right to counsel, if the case actually already proceeds to trial, a judgment for possession is issued and the sheriff's eviction is ready to go forward, unless we can find a very strong argument to obtain relief for the tenant based on excusable neglect or improper service, we can't unravel that at that point and that tenant will be displaced. Aura, what are some of the changes that you would like to see? Um, either at the city or state level, um, to further protect the rights of uh, of residents? I could think of many changes I would like to see. At the head of the list is something that would address some of the issues that Marika spoke about, which are duplicated in our environment in San Francisco. We also have a very high speculative vacancy rate. The estimates from studies are that over 40,000 units are intentionally being kept vacant in San Francisco for speculative reasons. Uh, If we were to place a tax on those units, not so much to generate income, which would be great to be used for housing homeless, but more to create a disincentive to cause them to be vacant to begin with, that would be excellent. But I think in the long term, a separation of the provision of this essential housing need from the commodification of housing, that the business model does not work the, the laws of supply and demand do not work when entwined with basic human necessities, such as clothing and shelter and food. And the same way that we provide food stamps to make sure that families should not go hungry, we should be providing consistent vouchers to make sure that everybody is easily housed in the marketplace. So long term, that's what I would be looking for. The right to counsel is essential, but it's a band-aid measure to protect people. It doesn't address the underlying issues to begin with. Mariko, I'll, I'll just ask you if you want to add on to that. If you if you had a magic wand, what would be some of the changes you'd want to see? Well, you know, in the realm of housing, one of the key drivers of a lot of the issues we see, including evictions, including homelessness and displacement and gentrification, is the fact that we have one of life's essentials housing as a commodity that can be bought and sold for profit. And the decommodification of housing and our other essential needs, I I think, has to be front and centre in any conversation about how we address the housing and eviction crisis. But even if we don't go so far as to have that conversation, at the very least, we should be having a conversation about why we think eviction is a solution to anything. In an environment where the consequences of eviction are so grave and devastating, and not just for the individuals who experience it and their families, but also for our society as a whole, we really need to be having a conversation about why do we think that the solution for, say, a failure to pay rent or, you know, some other issues in a person's housing um, is to evict the person as opposed to myriad other solutions that should be on the table and could be up for discussion. Eviction is a very particular response that is violent and traumatic. You know, really, we need to get a, get to a place where eviction is, is no longer on the table as a remedy that landlords can pursue. the Democrats invested in in government-funded public housing as much as they used to? Because it it feels to me that um, 
a great way to sort of really populate their cities in blue states and add more House seats in their uh, blue states and really take more control in the House. Because I really don't see any way they can take the House back the way things are going so i'm just i'm just curious as to why that's not a constituency that that, that uh, gr- great points but the democrats are not wired in this current iteration of their party to look out for and also appeal to poor people they're i mean the they're old, appealing to real estate yeah uh, interests more than that and suburban uh upper middle class donors that seems to be the direction that they've decided to go in and they're like we talk about how leadership is just ancient at this point, but they're still living in the era when um, public housing was a, a dirty word, um, and they feel like they can't politically uh, take the hit for advocating for such a position because that's again not the constituency they're appealing to anymore, but. The idea that we haven't had federal funding for public housing in decades and decades is a, an atrocity. Um, and, and that's, you know, uh, that's a, a huge problem. So point well, point well taken. I, I would also yeah. say, I would also say, though, there was there's two things about your premise that I think is wrong. One is that Democrats do things to increase their political power when they get into office. They don't I mean, forget about, you know, actually like appropriating money for public housing. They don't do the most basic of stuff that wouldn't cost a dime uh, to enhance their political power. You know, they none of that. Uh, the pro act even would have would you know we we know uh, greater union density uh, helps Democrats. They, it, whatever it is, voting rights, whatever it is. But then on top of that, I'm not convinced that what you're suggesting would 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 add to their would would add from a congressional standpoint because a lot of times you already have. Majority of Democrats in urban areas, and so um, they take those populations so, for granted. That's a huge part of it too. Well, but but my point yeah. being that if you were to cons- you were to to increase Democratic leaning constituents within urban areas, you would actually diminish their ability to uh, you know on a congressional level. Now, the one thing I will say is this: I'm quite convinced that the Democrats are going to lose the House in 2022, but. In terms of the way that the seats are, redra- are have been drawn, it, it's probably as close. It's it's probably much more balanced in twenty twenty two than it was in twenty ten, because contingent upon some court cases, because um, people became so uh, attuned to that that you had blue states essentially do the same redistricting tricks that was being done in red states at least on a federal level. And we should also say that there are Democrats who have advocated for these things. Bernie and AOC tried to include public housing in like the green new deal, uh, part of like, as build back better was being negotiated. So that was around a year ago. Obviously it's not going to happen, but there, there is a glimmer of hope of at, at least some members of, our government who understands the the, uh, the the necessity of public housing.
We've just heard clips today, starting with The Daily Show breaking down various reasons for the housing crunch. Tom Hartman ruminated on the idea of banning companies from buying up too much housing stock in a given area. The Damage Report looked at the impact of private equity buying up so much housing that people are being pushed across the border in California to Tijuana. The Gravel Institute looked at how socialists in Vienna managed to build a system of social housing that is the envy of the world. Tom Hartman spoke with Professor Richard Wolff about corporations profiting from housing while inflating a bubble, the bursting of which we will all have to deal with. The Takeaway discussed the right to counsel as a band-aid measure in times of rising evictions, and the Majority Report looked at why Democrats have been dropping the ball on public housing. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard two short documentary bonus clips, one from Rocky Mountain PBS looking at the impacts of high housing costs on local communities. I've worked for Uray School and Uray Brewery for 10 years. You know, I have jobs. I just could not find a place for my daughter and I to live. And that is where I am so fortunate that my boss keeps leases in town on houses that he can keep for his employees. And Channel 4 documentaries, which went to Vienna to tour their public housing Shangri-La. Oh, wow. Look at that. They've even got an indoor swimming pool as well. They have nurseries, schools, and tennis courts all conveniently on site. I can't quite believe this. This is about long-term thinking, allowing people to put down roots, giving them stability. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now that you're informed and angry... I'm about to tell you what you can do about it, but first, a little context. You may recall that last year, what is known as the Build Back Better plan was fractured during negotiations, and the pieces that did eventually pass were stripped of some really essential investments. One of those proposals left on the cutting room floor was a historic, targeted investment in affordable and accessible housing. Now, through the process of budget reconciliation, there's another chance coming for this critical housing investment to become reality with only a majority of Senate votes. But, of course, it will come as no surprise to you that Senator Joe Manchin is once again standing in the way, this time emphasizing the need to fight inflation by reducing the deficit. But someone needs to tell Joe that the rising cost of rent is actually a critical driver of inflation. Besides, as you heard, we desperately need affordable housing. Nationally, we have a severe deficit, and not one single state has enough affordable housing to meet demand. The National Low Income Housing Coalition is urging people to email, tweet at, and call your members of Congress today to demand that these necessary housing investments stay in any reconciliation package. They've provided a call-in script, as well as an advocacy toolkit, and we're linking to both of those in the show notes. But if you want to call directly, the Capital Switchboard number is 202. 2243121 and that is going to be it from me today as always you can keep the comments coming in at our number 
202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Brian for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com slash support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes. And speaking of joining, don't forget to join our Best of Left Discord community to discuss the show, the news, other podcasts, interesting articles, anything you have to recommend, because I am perpetually on the lookout for new recommendations. So if you have anything to recommend, just generally, I saw this, I heard this, Jay might be interested, he should check it out. Send that to me, tweet that at me whatever you like. And of course, links to our Discord community where we may be discussing your recommendations are in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.